Today's sponsor is Headspace. You slept every night of your life, so you should be pretty good at it by now, right? Unfortunately, many of us don't get the quality sleep that we need and could use a little bit of help, and that's where Headspace has got you covered. It's your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. And while they have meditations devoted to helping you reduce stress and increase your overall sense of well-being, they have an entire library of sleep stories, sleep music, and other sleep sounds that can help you get the quality sleep you desperately need. And for busy lifestyles, they have what's called wind downs. It's meditations and breathing exercises that are as short as three minutes so they can fit into anybody's schedule. I personally use Headspace myself. I've tried out some of the sleep stuff. It actually works. Like to me, it actually makes a difference. So Headspace, it's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews. That's a lot. And over 60 million downloads. Try it today for free and start sleeping soundly. So right now, our listeners get 30% off Headspace's entire library of meditations. Just go to headspace.com slash sleep pod for 30% off your subscription, but only until May 12th. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash sleep pod today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 262. Hook it up. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, when it comes to his oatmeal, no berries, no thank you, Pat Flynn. Yo, yo, what's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here. Thank you so much for joining me in this session of the SPI Podcast. This is 262. And first of all, I just want to thank everybody who has left a review on iTunes. It's super uh, encouraging, and, and I'm just honored that you would take the time to do that. So thank you very much. Now, today we have a great guest on, an author of a book that I picked up, and I picked it up specifically for something that I'm working on. So a lot of you might have seen on the blog, recently I've been working on a physical product. This isn't a book about physical products, but it's a book specifically on how to create habit-forming products, products that people are going to use over and over and over again and often subconsciously continue to use those things. Uh, this book is called Hooked, authored by Nir Eyal. That's N-I-R-E-Y-A-L. And he has a great website also for his uh, for everything he's got going on, actually, N-I-R and far, so near and far. And actually, it's a great interview because we go over the structure of exactly how one can create habit-forming products and for the product that I'm working on, you'll find the links to the um, posts that I've been publishing on SPI. We're doing one a month for a while now related specifically to that new experiment that I'm working on. It's a total different ball game than anything I've ever done completely out of my wheelhouse, which is why I'm doing it. That's that's what, what I love to do. Uh, just try new things, experiment, see what works and see what doesn't. But along the way, I like to research and interview and talk to people who have done it before or have created things and resources that can help me, and that is why I'm interviewing Nir today. So here's Nir, the author of Hooked, and sit back and enjoy. Here we go. Hey, everybody, what's up? I'm so happy to welcome the author of an amazing book I just finished called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and this is none other than Nir Eyal. Uh, he has a blog also at nearandfar.com, which is awesome. So Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Pat. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. I really uh, am glad that you asked me to, to come and chat. Yeah, well, I'm glad you had the time today. You know, how to build habit-forming products. I think this, for any entrepreneur, no matter what they're doing, whether it's building apps or creating a website, they want to build things for their audience that create habits, meaning people will continually come back again and again and again. When I read the title of this, I was like, is this really 
something that can be sort of formulated or I, I thought it just kind of happened uh, randomly, but you broke it down and we're going to get into that process today. Uh, so guys, stick around. This is going to be great information. But before we get to that, uh, Nir, I just want to talk about you really quick and, you know, why don't you tell us uh, what it is that you do? How did you get to uh, to where you're at today and what inspired you? Uh, what inspired you to write Hooked? Sure. So let's see. So I started a couple of tech companies, uh, the last of which was in the advertising and gaming space. And uh, those are two industries that I can now admit to you are really dependent on on mind control, right? On changing people's behaviors. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, the advertisers don't spend those billions of dollars for their health. And game companies, uh, what other industry knows how to manipulate user behavior better than the gaming industry. And so I kind of had this front row seat uh, learning about these psychological techniques that companies use to change your behavior. And I wanted to figure out how to use that for good. How could the rest of us use these tactics to change customer behaviors? to get them to use products that we know would benefit them, right, would really help improve people's lives if they would only give it a shot. And once they give it a shot, continue using it to help build healthy habits. And frankly, I didn't see any guidebook for how to do that. I didn't see any any book on how to build customer habits. I saw a lot of interesting books for dinner party conversations, but mm. not for a practical guide for how do I do this in my business. And so that's really the book I wanted to write. So after my last company was acquired, I had some time on my hands. I spent a lot of time in the Stanford library. Uh, that developed into a course that I taught at the Graduate School of Business and then at the Design School at Stanford. And then I wrote this book, uh, Hook, to kind of take all these learnings, combine them, and make them into a really practical uh, book that, that, that every entrepreneur can use to make their business more engaging and habit-forming. And I love that you mentioned uh, use for good because when I was reading this book and, and really started to realize that there was a formula here, I was like, wow, this is really powerful stuff. And then you, right when I was thinking about the whole, like, well, this could be used for bad, you had just dropped in a chapter about, okay, let's, let's talk about how, why this is, you know, should be used for good. There's like moral things that happen and ethics uh, involved with this. Um, and, and when you say gaming, yeah. when you first started out, did you mean like, like video games, right? Or did you actually mean like video games? Okay. So not like casino and that sort of thing, like, which also, you know, no, no, there's some, yeah, yeah. Habit formation, if, if not all out addiction. And, and, and uh, thank you for reading the whole book. It's funny because sometimes people come up to me and said, oh, I read your book about addiction. And, and, and that's not what my book is about. <laughs> so there's a big difference between addiction and habit formation. I, I don't recommend that anybody tries to addict people because addictions uh, hurt the user, right? These are uh, compulsive dependencies on a behavior or substance that harms the user. So we mm. would never want to actually addict people. But habits are a different story. Habits, we have good habits as well as some bad habits. And, and and look, this is powerful stuff. I mean, I, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I mean, this can be used to manipulate people uh, in negative ways as well. But I think that uh, by by learning how these techniques work, uh, one, we can build products and services that improve people's lives. We can help them build healthy habits, help them save money, help them exercise, help them eat better, communicate with their family, be more productive at work. I mean, these are all habits that technology can facilitate. And then two, on the other side, I think the, the other value of knowing this information is that, you know, look, I'll, I'll share a little secret with you that uh, a lot of people buy my book thinking, hey, they're going to build the next Facebook. Uh, and that's great. I love that entrepreneurial zeal. But what ends up happening at the end when they read the book, they, they realize, wait a minute, this is being done to me. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I am being manipulated. That Facebook and Instagram, now I understand why I keep using these products so much, why I keep checking and checking and checking. And of course, that's the first step to putting these technologies in their place and being productive uh, in our own lives and not slaves to these technologies to actually understand, wait a minute, there's some deeper psychology at work here 
that keeps us checking. I love that. Now, I remember when I was in college, there was a video game that I got hooked on for about four months, although you could call it an addiction because it did have a negative impact on my grades. Um, it was called WoW or World of Warcraft. And yeah. I, I, I remember in the first like five minutes that I was playing this game that I knew I was gonna be hooked because there's all these things happening and I'd love, to, I'd love for you to speak on just like the first step because obviously in order to use something over and over and over again, you have to use it once first and with all the things fighting for our attention out there, it can be difficult to kind of get a person to even look at us, let alone you know, build a habit using our stuff. So what, you know, what, what are the first steps in actually this, this whole process that you talk about? Right. Well, the first step is understanding whether you even need to form a habit in the first place. Because look, there, there's lots of companies out there that don't need to form a, cu a customer habit. If a customer uses your product once and that's it, then you don't necessarily need to form a habit. Now, the, the question then is, of course, can you use a habit? Can you build a habit around your product or service, even if it isn't used as frequently as maybe a Facebook or a World of Warcraft or whatever else you might, you know, uh, insert there. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first question to figure out, does the, is the core product a habit or do you need to bolt on a habit? So the, the best, of course, is if you can make the product itself a habit. And so that's why in the book, I profile companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Slack and Snapchat. And uh, even in the enterprise space, companies like Salesforce, uh, all of these companies, the product itself is habit forming. And, and I, I teach this four-step model uh, of how to make sure that your product has the, the, this, this habit forming process built into it that I call the hook. Um, and so it, it's kind of a diagnostic tool. The first step should be, if your business model requires a habit, do you have these four fundamental steps of a hook built in? And if you don't, you need to make sure you, you get those built in. Now, if your product is not used frequently, for example, uh, I was in Las Vegas recently at a convention of real estate agents, and I was about to get up on stage and, and give my talk to about 700 real estate agents. And the woman who hired me introduced me and said, now we're going to hear from an expert on how to build consumer habits, and he is going to teach us how to make home buying and selling into a habit. And <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> I said, uh, first thing I said when I came up on stage, I'm like, let's, let's be very clear here. You are never going to make home buying and selling into a habit. That is the antithesis of a habit. <laughs> it's not a behavior done with little or no conscious thought, and it doesn't occur anywhere near as frequently as you would need for a habit to, to, to take hold. Uh, you know, buying a house is something people do every you know, five to 10 years, not every day. Mm. So it's never going to become a habit. But I still gave my talk, and you know, I've been working on this stuff for years and years, and it was, it was fascinating because even though you wouldn't think home buying and selling can be a habit, these real estate agents, after I taught them this material, they came up later to me and they said, oh, I, I know what I'm going to do. I understand that home buying and selling is not going to become a habit, but I can form habits around my business. So for example, one lady came up to me and she said, I'm going to create a content habit. I'm going to create this habit around any time that people in my community feel uncertainty, what I call an internal trigger, this negative emotional state. I want them to turn to me for information about how to fix their financial problems. It's, is financial insecurity something people experience all the time? You bet it is. And they're constantly looking for a solution, for something to make them feel better about that problem. And so she started this content habit. And there's lots of companies. William Sonoma is a great example of a company doesn't have a frequently bought product, but has this habit of content creation. That's why we see this rise of content marketing today. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do is to form a community habit. Another one of these real estate agents wanted to form this community of other people in his neighborhood 
who who would would share information and have a little community around what was going on in their neighborhood. Uh, who was the football team playing? What what new movies were opening up in town? What was going on in their community? So they formed this habit around a community of of people. And then, of course, the result of this community or content habit would be that when it was time to buy or sell a home, guess who the customer would come to? Of course, they would come to these real estate agents. Uh, there's another company that does this really, really well, the, the community habit, Hallmark. Hallmark has this keepsake ornament club. I mean, if you think about a product that's not bought frequently, can't think of a better product than, than, than Christmas ornaments. Mm-hmm. And yet there are over 100,000 people in America subscribed to this keepsake ornament club because they have this community habit. It's not about the product they're buying. It's about this need to be understood and understand other human beings, this core fundamental human need to associate with other people. The byproduct of that habit is that they buy these, 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 what's on sale. They buy from Hallmark these Christmas ornaments. So it's not that your product itself has to be habit-forming. You can still attach these habits around your product so that the result of engagement is monetization. I mean, that's, that's what I'd love people to post somewhere in their office, that monetization is a result of engagement, not the other way around. Love it. And you had mentioned triggers earlier, which I know is a major point in your book. You had mentioned an internal trigger that I think the example you used in the book was, you know, somebody who's just kind of strolling around, they see something interesting that they want to snap a photo of, and they just feel this internal need to want to share it with their friends and family on Instagram. Um, There's other triggers too, right? Beyond just, you know, kind of the internal stuff. So this is, this is super important. I mean, so this is one of those concepts from consumer psychology, I think that changes the way you view the world, that there is only one reason and one reason only that we buy anything, okay? The only reason we buy is to change our internal state, to modulate our mood. That's it. We are relieving pain when we use products and services. So your job as someone who makes stuff is to figure out what pain you're going to address. And if you're going to build a habit-forming product, you need to think of a frequently occurring itch. You need to think of something that occurs often enough in the user's life so that they, when they feel that trigger, your product is how they find relief. So I'll give you some examples of internal triggers. If you think about uh, when you're feeling lonely, you'll open up Facebook, or maybe some people open up Tinder, right? <laughs> uh, when you're feeling uncertain, what do you do before you even think about it? You're already Googling. And when you're bored, where do you go? You go to YouTube, you check Reddit, you check stock prices, sports scores, the news. The, the reason these products are habit forming is because they have all attached to these frequently occurring itches, these internal triggers. And so that's the very first step. Before you build anything, if you're going to build a habit forming product, you have to be able to tell me what's the frequently occurring itch that people are going to turn to you to scratch. I see it. Now, are there triggers that can happen from the outside, for example, just from a company point of view, like I can continually remind people to begin using a product again, and thus they will go through the cycle and actually start using it and hopefully kind of get the wheels going again? Absolutely. So, so there are two types of triggers. And the ones that people know most, are most familiar with are what I call external triggers. These external triggers are things in our environment that tell us what to do next. Click here, buy now, play this. Uh, a friend uh, telling you through word of mouth about a great new app or website or product you should try. All examples of external triggers. Now, the, the, the goal, what you have to do, the secret here, is to closely attach the external trigger to the internal trigger. This, this, is, this is the difference between uh, a notification or a piece of, of, of marketing or something that comes to the user that feels like spam and that's annoying and just wastes your money 
and something that actually gets a response. And the secret between something that feels like spam and something that feels like magic is one word. And that one word is context. Context is all about closely coupling the internal trigger and external trigger together. You know, Paul Graham said that the secret of, of succeeding in business is to give people what they want. I would add to that that the real secret to giving people what they want is to give it to them when they want it. Mm. I can't tell you what a rookie mistake it is, and I see it happening all the time that app makers and product makers, we, we, they keep sending things to people on their schedule without thinking about the customer's schedule. When is your user, your customer, most likely to be in pain and your product solves that pain? And there's so much we can do today. I mean, there's so much data that we can access, time of day data, place data, all kinds of information that we can try and ascertain when is a customer most likely to need our solution, and that's when we reach out, not just whenever we feel like it. Right, right. Now, triggers are obviously the first part, right? That's what kind of initiates, but you know, I see things all day that don't you know, get me to take action. You know, like buttons here and advertisements here and probably even internal triggers that happen that I just don't act on. So how does one get from trigger to, to action? Right, so, so big picture, the ultimate goal is to no longer require those external triggers, right? When a company wins is when they attach their product's use to just the internal trigger so that you don't need a notification or an email or something spammy to get you to open the, the, the product. Uh, or the app, it's just the feeling, right? right? Boredom, loneliness, insecurity. Facebook, Facebook doesn't heat, tell me to it open is. it. <laughs> exactly. That's the ultimate win. I mean, Facebook spends almost no money on ads. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Right? Almost no except money. For live you, video. you didn't see a Super Bowl commercial, right? I mean, very, very little money mm-hmm. they spend compared to their you know, companies of that massive size. Almost no dough do they spend on, on ads because their strategy, and this is really a sea change when it comes to how companies are built today, their strategy is that the product itself is habit forming, right? That's what makes you remember to come back is the association with a negative feeling. But after they do that, right, it's through the process of running you through these four steps, the next step being the action. The action phase of the hook is, this, is defined as the simplest thing that you can do to get a reward, the simplest thing you can do. So what these companies are specialist in is using this principle of the easier something is to do, the more likely you are to do it. So something as easy as just tapping on that notification and scrolling through your feed. That's it. That's the core habit for a product like Facebook and many other online products is just opening the app and scrolling some kind of feed. That's the action. So your goal as a product maker is to figure out that repeat behavior, that habit, how can I make it as easy as possible? That the mistake I see a lot of folks make is that they think they should motivate their users. That if people just knew how great the product was, if I just sold at them, if I just showed them more videos and explanations and mm-hmm. testimonials, then they'll use. And it turns out that motivation is typically not the problem. The problem is usually ability. It's that the product is just too hard to use. Right, understood. Now, what really surprised me when I was reading your book was that there, there was, you know, when we usually hear about habits, we usually hear things like, oh, it, you have to the person has to do it for seven days straight or 21 days before it becomes a habit. And I don't know, maybe I missed it, but I don't think it was in there. And I'm, I'm curious to know why it wasn't because that's, we always hear that. And obviously I yeah. agree with the way that you've kind of framed everything here. And I feel like it's just more, it's not as as simple as saying, hey, just get somebody to do something for this many days and then and then they, they're in. 
Yeah, so it's a myth. That's why it's not in there. Okay. <laughs> because well, that's that. <laughs> the, this magic number theory. Yeah, yeah, the magic number theory of uh, 60 days or 25 days or 45 days. There's no magic number for the number of days you have to do a behavior for it to become a habit. Uh, what we do know that's backed by, by good research, that, that happens to be an urban legend, but what we do know from good research is, is two things when it comes to frequency of, of habit formation. Number one, the more frequently you do a behavior, the more likely it is to become a habit. And when you think about the habit-forming potential of online products, right? how often do people use Twitter and, and Tinder and Facebook and Instagram? How often do people use these things? Well, multiple times a day. The stats are telling us that people check their home screen 150 times a day. So very, very high habit-forming potential. The second thing we know is that the likelihood of forming a habit goes down precipitously if the behavior does not occur within a week's time or less. That seems to be the cutoff, that mm. if you can't get your customer to do that key action within a week's time or less, you're kind of screwed. You have to figure out how to make a, a habit around the product, not make the product itself the habit. Got it. Okay, cool. Thanks for clarifying that uh, and kind of just putting the foot down there. I think it makes perfect sense. Now, the next step, so we talked about triggers and then the action that's sort of phase two here. Phase three now uh, which is one of my favorites and one of my favorite parts of the book is is reward. I talk a lot about reward on my own site. Uh, going back to the World of Warcraft example, I knew that this was gonna be a game that I wanted to play because within the first five minutes, I was rewarded with level number two, unlocked abilities, mm -hmm. all these other cool things. But the way that you dove into it and talked about the different kinds of rewards was really interesting. Can you speak on rewards and the different types that are available to us product developers out there? Sure, sure. So. Uh, so after we figured out the internal trigger, the itch that brings the, 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 uh, the customer has, the external trigger prompts into the action, the action phase is the simplest thing the user to, can do to get the reward. Now it's time to actually give them the reward. So the goal of the reward phase is to give the user what they want, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough to just give people what they want. We also have to make them have some kind of uncertainty about what they might find the next time we, they engage with us. So why, why do I say that? Why isn't it good enough to just give people what they want? Well, there's a lot of research going back about 70 years now that finds that that variability, that a bit of uncertainty increases engagement. So let me take you back to the work of B.F. Skinner, the father of operant conditioning. Skinner was a, was a pioneer in this field. And what he did, he did this very interesting experiment. What he did, he, he took these food pellets and he gave them to his pigeons. Uh, at first, whenever they pecked at a disc, so pigeon would peck at the disc, he would give them a little food pellet, a little reward. And what Skinner could do very quickly, he, he found that he could condition the behavior of his pigeon, right? Uh, whenever the pigeon was hungry, they would peck at the disc, get the reward, boom. He trained them what, how to get the, the food pellet. Mm -hmm. But then something interesting happened. Skinner started to use variability. So sometimes the pigeon would peck at the disc and, and nothing would come out. The next time the pigeon would peck at the disc, they would receive a reward. And it turns out that the rate of response, the number of times these pigeons pecked at the disc, increased when the reward was given on a variable schedule of reinforcement. And of course, we see this variability all over the place, right? We see it in all sorts of products and services. If you think about what makes a sports game a match worth watching, it's mm. the variability, right? Nobody wants to know the score of a game after they've watched it. They haven't got a chance to see it on TiVo or whatever. You don't want to know the score, right? You want the surprise. What makes movies interesting, right? You don't want somebody to tell you that how the how the ending works out because then it takes away the variability. The news, right? Nobody wants to read yesterday's news. It's not new anymore. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you think about gambling, right? The slot machine mechanic 
of pulling on a slot machine. And then you've got this variability of, can't, are you going to win the jackpot? Is all about what, what we call intermittent reinforcement. And of course, online, we see it in spades. Every time you scroll through your newsfeed or check a, a photo on Snapchat or whatever, uh, all that is variable. Email is another great example, right? What I think email is probably the mother of habit-forming technology. Mm. It's all about uncertainty. It's all about variability. We're, we're in those Skinner boxes opening the uh, opening these messages, and sometimes it's, it's junk. Sometimes it's super interesting. Sometimes it's actually super important. And that variability keeps us checking and checking and checking. Now, is there a way for a person you know, maybe somebody who's listening on the other end right now who is uh, in the ideation phase and are creating products and whatnot, is there a way to determine what the best kind of reward would be? Or how, how does a reward come into the product world? Like, is it, um, like, I feel like people might want to try and force a reward that, because they're hearing this and it makes sense, um, but, you know, the reward right, should right. obviously align with with the motivations and, and whatnot. So I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out how to best place a reward into the into this whole process without just kind of having it be a, an, right. an afterthought. Exactly. You, you don't want to do what, uh, you, you don't want to just put points and badges and leaderboards and make it look like a game and expect it to work. A lot of times that, that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it fundamentally has to scratch the user's itch, mm-hmm. right? That fundamentally this reward has to give people what they want. So there has to be a connection between the internal trigger that we talked about earlier and the reward. Uh, if the internal trigger is loneliness, well, then the reward has to connect people together. If the internal trigger is boredom, well, then the reward has to entertain. So fundamentally, you have to figure out what that itch is in order for the reward to be effective. And then by crafting that reward, there's actually three types of variable rewards. Rewards of the tribe, rewards of the hunt, and rewards of the self. So rewards of the tribe are all about these social rewards, competition, cooperation, uh, empathetic joy, feeling good because someone else feels good. All of these things are rewards of the tribe. Rewards of the hunt are all about the search for information or material rewards. Uh, the search for, you know, if you think about slot machines, what makes slot machines habit forming, if not all additive, is, of course, this hunt for money. Mm. Uh, or online, when you think about a news junkie, right? Why are we hooked to watching the news every day? It's because of the variability of the information we might learn. And then rewards of the self. So rewards of the self are about mastery, completion, competency, uh, finishing the to-dos in your to-do list, uh, checking the unread messages in your inbox, all of this. And, and of course, your example earlier, World of Warcraft, getting to the next level, the next achievement, all examples of these variable rewards of the self. Love it. Uh, thank you for that. Um, okay, so let's, let's hone in on the final sort of stage here in the cycle, which is investment. Mm-hmm. Um, this one... I really liked because it sort of builds on itself and it becomes sort of the snowball effect where once you're in, you can't get out. And I feel like a good example of this, and, and I'll let you uh, talk more about what this means and, to, and how to define it and find it, but a good example for me is is Dropbox. So I pay monthly mm-hmm. for Dropbox, right? For everybody listening, you, you all know what Dropbox is for storage and file transfers and whatnot. Um, I have gigabytes and gigabytes of files on there. It would be crazy mm-hmm. for me to not use that product anymore. I'm in there and I'm I'm committed. It's become a part of my life. I'm invested in that product, uh, and it's paying me back because it's helpful. So that's that's how this product is continually making month over month money from me and you know tens of thousands of other customers too. So that's an example of and that that is what we're talking about, right? When we talk about investment, exactly. It's a great example. I mean, investment is 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 super important in the product, and when we talk about investing in a product. We're not talking about money. Money is a form of investment, but in this day and age, it's actually not the most important form. 
Investments are things that the user does to increase their likelihood of the next pass through the hook. Okay, something the user does to increase the likelihood of the next pass through the hook. Mm. And investments do this in two ways. The, the first way is by storing value. And storing value is, is, is a really big deal. When you think about you know, the future of how products will be made, how billion-dollar businesses are, are being made today and will be made in the future, it's all about stored value. And the reason stored value is so important is that for the first time in history, the customer is making the product with the manufacturer. That's brand new, right? It used to be when, when a Model T rolled off the line, it was done. <laughs> there was only, mm-hmm. you know, that was it. But today, if you think about it, that's not the way that Facebook is made. If you logged into my Facebook account, it would be completely boring to you, right? Because it's been tailored based on the investment I have made in the product, who my friends are, what I've commented on, what I've posted, all this data that I've given the company has co-created the product in real time just for me. That's a really, really big deal. So there's a few forms of this stored value. It can be data. It can be content. For example, the the example you gave of of Dropbox, the more content you uploaded, the more valuable it becomes over time, the more likely you are to return. Followers. So for example, the more followers I have on a platform, the more valuable it becomes a way for me to reach my audience. Reputation and skill. So all of these things, the more I accrue, the more investment I put into the product, the harder, the stickier it becomes to leave. Even if, think about this, even if a better product comes along. I mean, if there's one myth I want to smash, it's that it's not the best product that wins. Many people in business today think, well, we'll just make the best product and customers will come beating down our door. And I'm here to tell you that's not good enough, that the graveyards of Silicon Valley are full of companies that had the best technology, but that's not good enough. You have to own the monopoly of the mind. You have to be the first product that customers think of. That's who carries the market. So the first way that investments increase the likelihood of the next pass is through stored value. The second way is by loading the next trigger. So when products can have you do something on as a user, something that you do to bring yourself back. So for example, uh, take Pinterest. Uh, every time I post something to Pinterest or comment on something, and, and this example can go for any number of platforms. You can substitute WhatsApp or, or Slack or any kind of messaging type system that mm-hmm. has that interface. I will get a message in the future that says, hey, guess what? Somebody interacted with something you did previously. That, that notification, that message is an example of an external trigger, which we talked about earlier, that brings me through the hook once again. And now I'm going back through the trigger action reward investment cycle all over again. And it's through successive cycles through those four steps. That's how the association with the internal trigger is formed. Love it. I love it. Uh, before we finish up here, and again, thank you so much for your time, everybody. Make sure you check out Hooked. I'll have a link in this in this um, the show notes for everybody, of course, and also to Nier's blog. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is discovering these sort of habit forming opportunities. I think you know if we keep our eyes and ears open, they are out there. But do you have any tips for people who are running their businesses now who may have opportunities right in front of them, but they're just not seeing it? How do you discover these habit forming opportunities? Yeah, the best thing you can do is to look for behaviors uh, that are already occurring. Uh, so what I, what I love to hear is when an entrepreneur, so I do quite a bit of angel investing myself. I, I look for only companies that have these habit-forming uh, properties. And I always love it when an entrepreneur comes to me and says, look, we're just going to take this habit over here that's currently occurring offline, and we're going to bring it online. I mean, that's, that's one of the best things you can do is to say, look, people already have this habit. 
Uh, right now, they're 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 doing it with scotch tape and bubble gum, and you know they're stitching <laughs> together a bunch of Excel docs uh, to, to to make this product work. Now we're just going to take that existing behavior and move it online. Uh, and I think what we're going to see in the next few years is entrepreneurs not just in Silicon Valley anymore. I mean, Silicon Valley is now the entire United States. Uh, people all over the country are recognizing these opportunities to use technology in every business. I mean, what business today is not a technology company? Right. Uh, and, and what they're doing is looking for these opportunities where they can move offline habits online. So what you need to do is to look for frequently occurring habits that are offline and, and figure out ways to bring them online as well. Or take existing, uh, existing parts of your business and bolt on these habit-forming elements like content and community that we discussed earlier. Is this only an online thing? Can habits be formed in the same, similar fashion for brick and mortar or, or sort of offline products? They certainly can. Uh, there's lots of products that are that are habit forming that uh, are not online. I mean, if you think about our habits with television, right. right? Like people people feel very compelled. The first thing they do when they come home is you know plop on the couch and turn on TV and 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 watch a football game or something. So they definitely have all kinds of habits, both online and offline. But I'm most excited about these online habits because the the winners of the past century, the big companies, are all being disrupted today. By little guys, by little entrepreneurs who see the opportunity uh, that online provides. I mean, the, the the missing link for many offline companies is that they don't have the investment phase, right? If you think about the newspaper business, why is their newspaper business disrupted? Well, because there's no way to make the product better with use. Well, here comes Facebook. And based on how you participate with the news, what you like, what you watch, what you comment on, the product gets better and better and better with use. Not to mention that it's free. It's easy. So when you think about the action phase, it's easier to get what I want than ever before. So that's where you see these upstarts using uh, the four steps of the hook to disrupt old industries. And I think we're going to continue to see that in the decades to come. And the billion-dollar opportunities are out there. They're, they're going to you know, be made by people who are listening to me right now. That's awesome. The the one story I loved at the end of your end of your book, uh, which relates to a product that many people in the audience are familiar with, which is Buffer. Uh, you had talked about how Joel, the founder, kind of discovered this thing he he was doing all the time, but it was just kind of cumbersome, and he turned that into Buffer, which is obviously sharing information that you find just with one click, uh, essentially through social media, and that's where Buffer came from. I'm on barometrics.com right now looking at their numbers and they are now at over a million dollars monthly run rate uh, which is just inc incredible and it's all because he just kind of discovered this itch that he had and he, he solved it and um, he turned it into a habit so uh, I think I think yeah. you know just wanted to inspire everybody out there it, does, it doesn't need to take very much to go and find these things you just have to kind of have a creative and open mind and sometimes they're just right in front of you. Right and, and, and to touch on that that's one of the points that I make in the chapter in the book around the morality of manipulation is that uh, when I, you know, I talk about in this chapter on how do we use this stuff eth ethically? How do we make sure that, that we apply these techniques for good? And there's this two-part test I give of, of, number one, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, is what I'm working on materially improving people's lives? And that's something that only you can answer. And the second question to your point about Buffer is you have to ask yourself, am I the user? Okay. Am I the user? And the, and the reason I do that, by the way, the reason it's a two-part test, that it's not good enough just to work on something that you believe materially improves people's lives, that you have to actually be the user yourself, mm. is that I want you to break the first rule of drug dealing. Do you know what the first rule of drug dealing is, by the way? I don't, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's probably a good thing. <laughs> the first rule of drug dealing is never get high on your own supply. Ah. Okay. So I'm, I'm making you break the rule. Why? Because if there are any deleterious effects, to what you're doing. If what you're building can actually hurt people, guess who's going to be the first person to know? 
Right. You are, because you're the user. So not only does that put you in a good ethical position, you're building something people really, that material and people's lives, and you're the user. It also puts you in an amazing business position, right? So you're covering your, 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 your eth- the ethics side of this is covered, but also it's a huge competitive advantage because the hardest part of building a successful company is knowing what your customer really wants. And what better advantage can you get than building something you yourself need to exist in the world? Uh, and when you think about Google and Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack, every single one of these companies was founded by an entrepreneur who met this criteria of building something that they believe materially improves people's lives and they are the user of. Drop the mic. Love it. Nir, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, for coming on and sharing this with us. I think uh, everybody's going to be really excited to pick up this book and, and check it out and see how you can build habits into the product that you're offering and um, so one more time, uh, near NIR and far.com for your blog. And then uh, where, where would you prefer people pick up the book? Just on Amazon? Yeah, anywhere they'd like. Uh, if they want an autographed copy, they can get that at my blog. If they want just uh, a, an Amazon copy, of course, that's available there. And uh, just a, a quick note that on my blog, near and far, near spelled like my first name, N-I-R and far.com, there's actually a, a free workbook if you if you want to give this a spin. And uh, I, I have this free workbook that you can actually work through the steps to identify uh, whether your product has the potential to be habit forming. You can get that right on my blog as well. Awesome. You rock, man. Thanks for coming on and, and we appreciate you. My pleasure, Pat. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Near. Again, you can find him at near and far, N-I-R and far.com. And we'll have all, all the links on the show notes, like I said earlier, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 262. And uh, like he said, there is a workbook that you can check out there as well, which is super cool. So thank you so much. I appreciate you and look forward to next week's episode. We got a, it's honestly one of the best episodes we've recorded in a while. And that's with a previous guest who has come on and just blown me away, giving us the strategy on how to actually ladder up in your business. So really starting small and niched down, like we've always talked about, the riches are in the niches, but then how do you scale up from there? It gives us a blueprint for how to do that. So look out for that next week. Until then, keep moving forward. Love you guys. Thanks for all the reviews and I appreciate you. Subscribe. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it, and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it.